we do live in a world that is full of sort of customization and choice. Uh, more than ever in history, I would argue, that over the past even 100 years, if you were to even look at things like a grocery store, uh, we've moved from one to two products representing uh, some, some sort of thing versus hundreds of products representing that same thing. So you have 300 plus choices of cookies right now, I think, at your local supermarket. 200 plus choices of salad dressings. Uh, and not including olive oils and balsamic vinegars and all the things you can make various other salad dressings out of. There's tons and tons of customizations. We're inventing new cereals every day uh, for the cereal aisle. And so I think there's 20 iterations of Cinnamon Toast Crunch now too. It's like French Toast Crunch. I'm like, how different is French Toast Crunch versus Cinnamon Toast Crunch? But we, we have it. Yeah, explaining even to my kids the difference between my childhood to their childhood is also difficult. Uh, even trying to explain the difference of watching television shows because that's what was on television versus choosing what you get to watch uh, is very different things and having to watch the guide channel just to figure out what's actually on TV and, um, or listening to the radio and having to put up with DJs and, and commercials and everything else. And, sitting there with the record button ready to be pressed just to have that new song that's just come out and hit record so you can have it on your radio. It's all part of sort of the, the practice where choice wasn't the option. You got what you got. And, um, but my kids now live in a day where whatever show they want to watch, they pick. Whatever music they want to listen to, they pick. Um, we, we live in a day of customization and choice even have curated algorithms that know your tastes better than you actually do. Uh, but that's another sermon for another time. <clears throat> and I would argue we take the same approach often with Jesus. I think our default heart position is often to make a God, to make Jesus himself look like us. We selectively ignore certain things about him, Things that might even offend, maybe God's holiness, his sovereignty, his wrath, his exclusivity, whatever it may be. But we often remake Jesus to look like us. Scott McKnight, um, who's a seminary professor in the Midwest, he, he talks about his first day of class. And one of the first things he does on the first day of class is hand out a survey. And in the survey, he asks, all right, what do you, what do you think Jesus is like? And people answer, like, uh, do you think he's introverted? Do you think he's extroverted? Do you think he's like the life of the party? Do you think he's kind of solemn? The, what, what do you feel like Jesus is like? What do you feel like uh, is your perception? And not just based upon best thoughts, like based upon scripture. What do you feel like Jesus is like? And then um, soon after, he also takes a survey of the class to ask them, all right, what are you like? Are you introverted? Are you extroverted? Like, do you like going out? Do you like being alone? Do you, do you, um, what are your, what are your tastes and things? Do you really care about poverty and justice? Do you care about this? What do you, what do you care about? And he says, to a T, what people answered what Jesus was like and what they answered about themselves tended to be highly correlated. That we have a tendency, each of us, to sort of create Jesus in our own image. And so many of us think we're becoming more like Christ, but instead we're often making Christ more like us. And Voltaire even said that God may, have, God may have made us in his, in his image, but we have certainly returned the favor. Even, um, even if you look at the early uh, founders of this country, someone like Jefferson, who was a, a huge byproduct of the Enlightenment, 
kind of moving into modernism, uh, Jefferson himself would have um, uh, discounted everything that was supernatural. He didn't like it. It didn't really make sense to him. And so he would approach Scripture, and he'd cut out. It's pretty famous, the Jefferson Bible. He cut out everything that was supernatural about Jesus. So that the Jesus that he would end up with was more palatable to him. He was more of a philosopher that taught some great things. And the Jefferson Bible even ends with the tomb, with the stone being rolled over the tomb, not opening the tomb. And so that's how the story ends is Jesus died, the end. And so we often find ourselves, I would argue, creating Jesus in our image. But we've got to um, fill in the gaps a little bit. We are walking through a series where we are looking at that last and final week of Jesus' life. And uh, last week we talked through the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' prayer and his anguish in that garden, asking his Father to take the cup away, of which he also says, but your will, Father. And today we're going to look at... Um, Jesus before Pilate, the governor uh, in Israel at this time, and this trial with uh, Barabbas and uh, these choices that people have to make between Barabbas and Jesus Christ. But in between then, we, we've skipped a few stories. At some point, Jesus does get arrested. He is betrayed by one of his own disciples. He gets arrested in the middle of the night. He gets taken immediately to uh, this basically off-site court uh, there is a formal court uh, for the Sanhedrin, and it's a court building that um, exists within the Temple Mound. But here uh, in the storyline, he gets taken into this night court uh, by the religious leadership in Jerusalem at the time uh, at, the, at the high priest's house, um, just to keep driving home the point that what is happening is not uh, above board. Uh, there's actually plenty of oral law that was written by that time that this is not how trials take place. Uh, and so... Um, and we've already kind of covered that the religious leadership at the time uh, was more like a mafia than it was um, like this upstanding moral group of priests. Uh, they, were, um, they were interested in backroom deals and things like that. And so Jesus goes to this night trial uh, that's against their own oral law and tradition, gets asked all sorts of questions by these Jewish leaders, and they are Jewish questions, questions around him being the Messiah, the Son of God, things like that. And Jesus does not deny any of those accusations. But we also will watch, if you read the stories, Jesus is much more straightforward than he has been in the past. Sometimes he um, does this amazing work at confounding the religious leadership by um, some of the puzzles that he kind of leads them with that they don't have an answer to. Enough that one of the gospel writers records that they don't want to ask him any more questions because he's making them look like such foolish leaders. But in this scenario, he starts answering pretty straightforward. Um, it does feel like after the Gethsemane moment, from this point on, Jesus is resolute to go towards the cross. He knows what's coming. He is not backing down. And he is straightforward in his responses. They eventually hand Jesus over to Pilate, who's the Roman governor at the time. Uh, and the Romans certainly have their own way of dealing with um, punishment and death. The cross itself, uh, we often certainly associate it with religious imagery, uh, but the cross itself was one of the most barbaric uh, forms of punishment, often for uh, insurrectionists, for those who work against the crown and the emperor, all those sort of things. And so um, it, it was definitely a symbol of shame and pain and everything in between. And so they bring up Jesus to Pilate on charges that he is claiming to be king, 
which is really all that Rome cares about. Rome doesn't care about the religious accusations. They certainly care if somebody's claiming to be a king when the emperor is in Rome. Uh, there shouldn't be another king in Israel at the time. And so that becomes the charges that get brought up. So we're going to pick up Matthew 27, starting at verse uh, 15. Now at the feast, what feast are we at this week? Passover, great. The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then, they were notorious, uh, and the Greek should simply sort of read famous, well-known. It's not quite always as negative as the word notorious carries with it. This famous prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ. Now imagine the religious leaders who are so set on Jesus being crucified were suddenly like, oh, the pilot's got us. Like, he brought out Jesus to possibly be released after they worked so hard to finally get him arrested. <clears throat> who do you want uh, me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So both Pilate and his wife, certainly we are clued in that they at least are recognizing that Jesus is not the guilty party in this scenario. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, Pilate, rightfully so, why? What evil has he done? And they clearly answered the question, but when they said and shouted, let him be crucified. So they didn't even answer his question. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate plays the political game. He sees that, surveys the crowd, sees that they are all moving in favor of Jesus, and Pilate um, simply does what Pilate does. Because that's what we know. There's some history, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly when this started, that there would be a release of a prisoner every year, kind of like uh, the, the parting of the turkey on Thanksgiving here in America, but that every year there would be this pardon that would be given to an individual. We know that Pilate is in town uh, because it's sort of Independence Day week in Israel. They're celebrating the holiday where they had been under an oppressive regime, uh, enslaved, and ultimately God delivered them into independence out of their bondage. And so Rome, who is currently the occupying party, is showing up, having a show of force, because Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea Maritima. He shows up uh, with a show of force to make sure everybody knows who's still in charge. And as part of ruling, they are doing a few games to say, look, we will release one prisoner a year. How about that? That'll keep you guys happy. And so Pilate's allowing this sort of uh, tradition to continue. And at some point, we get presented with Jesus and this man named Barabbas. Now, at some point, it's peculiar. There's this 
random criminal and the savior of the world all kind of mentioned all at the same time. But there's something to the character of Barabbas that I think um, history will help us unpack a little bit. Barabbas itself, the name, is actually simply a, a patronym. Uh, what a patronym is, is a title that's usually the person's name and then a reference to their father. So you would say, so-and-so, son of some, somebody else, right? And, and we've seen this in, in plenty in Scripture, like Peter himself. Jesus' disciple, Peter, is introduced as Simon bar Jonah. And all that means is Simon, son of Jonah or John. And that, that's it. So like we would, we would in modern English say Peter Johnson. That's, that's, that's the disciple Peter's name in English, Peter Johnson. And that would be in the name. And, and we see it. Nathaniel bar Ptolemy, uh, Elemis bar Jesus. We see this in, in the New Testament throughout. Bar sort of being the son of and then the following name. So Barabbas is not his real, probably, first name, given name. Barabbas um, means son of, and it can either mean son of the father, or uh, if that R is to be carried, a son of a teacher. And, and so um, it would have been, um, it's missing the more commonly used first name. There's a question of why is this? And did you know that some of the earliest manuscripts we actually have of Matthew give Barabbas a name? And that early church fathers, including someone like Origen, mentioned that Barabbas even had a first name. And what do you think it might be? And what we found is we find him referenced as Jesus Barabbas, Yeshua Barabbas. And Yeshua is a common name. Jesus is not an uncommon name. It's Joshua, really, in, in, in translation. But... Um, there was this juxtaposition in the storytelling of Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson even comments on this and says, the whole, uh, On the whole, it is more likely that scribes deleted the name, Jesus from Jesus Barabbas, out of reference for Jesus Christ, than added it in order to set, startling, um, set a startling, if grotesque, choice between the Jews. And so, I mean, you have modern commentators who are all sort of uh, in this camp, and all of them are like, we're 90% certain. And so I, I don't want to put 100% down, but it does become an interesting um, play out of these two characters that we can still do without that name. But if you look at some of the earliest manuscripts, I, I believe it's there for us to work with. This Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus the Christ. So what do we know about the two? We, we, in Barabbas, we, we find him identified in Mark and Luke and Acts as a murderer. In John, they call him a robber. He's likely connected with this whole movement. He's, he's called an insurrectionist. So he's likely connected with this whole movement called the Zealots. They were a whole group sort of in, in northern uh, Israel, not far from where the Pharisees were really camped out. And their goal, their view of the world was to usher in this political kingdom of Israel by any means necessary. Force, murder, war. They wanted Rome out, and they wanted Israel back in their own form of power. They were Israel nationalists in their time. They supported themselves through robbery, particularly against those who had sided with the Roman government. They were sort of patriotic rebels in Israel. And this group, out of all the groups, were probably the least interested in the sort of spiritual Torah-observant understanding of the Messiah to come, the King to come. They're much more willing to take matters into their own hands, no matter what the prophets had said would happen. They were ready for Rome to get out. 
And perhaps Barabbas, being famous as he was, was one of the notable leaders at this time of this rebellious movement. So why, why do so many people side with Barabbas? Because they believed in this world and not the world to come. They believed having political power now. They believed in materialism now. They did not believe in the prophets or the promises of God. They wanted to take matters into their own hands, leaning on their own understanding, and, and solve their problems now. Because they had a felt need. Rome wasn't always the greatest. <laughs> they wanted independence. They wanted freedom. All these things are not wrong or, or, or evil things. But what they wanted perhaps was a Barabbas that was more the savior that they had in mind than the one Jesus came to be. Because Jesus was quite different. We already covered uh, Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, even though today is officially Palm Sunday. Um, but his very entrance into Jerusalem would have been such a juxtaposition coming in from the, from the east and Pilate on that same day likely coming in from the west with his war horse and his battalion behind him and Jesus riding on a donkey surrounded by a bunch of peasants waving some palm branches. He spoke about things that he says makes for peace and not war. He condemned the religious leadership, but spoke to his disciples about when it's going to happen and that they would simply need faith to overthrow. He washed feet. He spoke of his imminent death as the Lamb of God. He instructed Peter to lay down his sword, not take it up. He did not object to accusations that were wrong and illegal in the night in this corrupt trial that he had before him. This was hardly the Messiah they expected. He was not the insurrectionist they expected, going around saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, which Jesus has just experienced. Rejoice and be glad, and your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is hardly the expectation that they wanted out of their Messiah, this future king. He was so different. Who has time for this kind of Messiah that doesn't get us the things we want now? And so I would argue that's why you and I, we, like I, I want Barabbas too. We usually think, well, we wouldn't have done that. If we were there that day, we would be all for the correct Jesus and not for Jesus Barabbas. Those are the bad guys. Jesus is a good guy. We can sort this out. But which Jesus do we actually want? Because the crowd seemed to want their customized Jesus. They desired political change. They wanted economic and political restoration. They wanted rights fought for. And Jesus Christ himself did not fit the description that they expected. This was not the kind of Jesus they were looking for. They thought their greatest need was political freedom and things like that, and they wanted Jesus to be that. And whatever you believe to be your greatest need will determine which Jesus you actually want. 
Whatever you believe, your, your greatest needed will, will determine the attributes about Jesus that sometimes we overemphasize versus others. Every, everybody does this, just so you know. No one's immune to this. We carve out a Jesus based upon what we think our greatest needs are. And even some of those needs being tr- completely biblical needs. Sometimes we highlight one attribute at the expense of another attribute. Sometimes we want Jesus to be the great comforter. And, and hear me, there's, there's something wrong about some of that. And we certainly know the Holy Spirit plays a role as a comforter. And we look for Jesus to be our comforter. Sometimes we emphasize that above holiness. We end up downplaying areas or some sins that, that might make um, us comfortable. Maybe certain relationships we're in, maybe certain ways we spend our money, whatever it is. And don't focus on God's holiness in those areas. Jesus wants me to be comfortable. So this relationship that I'm in and may not be the healthiest and it's not the most godly, but I'm satisfied right now. So God, you're, you're okay with that, right? Or maybe healing. We want to emphasize the God of healing. And hear me, that's, that's a good thing. God is a God of healing but sometimes it becomes so much so that Jesus becomes a healer at the expense of other attributes. And then if God doesn't show up the way you expected because you totally expected a God of healing and he doesn't actually bring healing, then it starts turning your world upside down. You start questioning all things because you tended to forget also that God is a sovereign God and maybe using suffering in some ways to bring about a greater purpose. And we pick and we choose. And we remake Jesus into a completely and entirely different God than he is. The customized Jesus. And the things they wanted in their story weren't bad things. To overflow the Roman government is not a bad thing. Rome had its own issues. But the problem is when they become the ultimate things, they had started to become idols. And the Jesus we want becomes the Jesus we start to imitate as well. Our sin nature orients us towards ourselves. Like we, we can even see how this works out in culture itself. We often like things that remind us the most of us. We usually choose friends based upon points of commonality or hobbies or likes or sometimes things like ethnicities and, and other things like that. Like I, I could connect to a 40-year-old with a bunch of kids that, that um, shares like the chaos of what life is like right now. Like, I can connect with that real easily. Same language, same experiences. I could tell jokes about what it was like to record things on the radio and, and all that kind of stuff as normative. When a 22-year-old, I may not be able to relate to quite as well. It's just true. It's fine. I don't wear, like, baggy tie-dyed sweatshirts and stuff like that. Um, it's a whole different world. I'm like, those are the clothes we chose not to wear in the 80s anymore, and you're wearing them again. Um, but it's just part of it. And we tend to find someone around us that affirms the identity that we have. And we, we, will, we will say, like, yeah, I, I like you, but we won't say the second part, which is, I like you because I really love me. And we struggle to be around people who don't remind us of ourselves. When people are that much different than us, it's sometimes a real struggle. You always have disclaimers of, like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't have to do disclaimers with... 40-year-old who was raised in the same sort of media and stuff like that I was. Like, when I, when I make a joke, it's like, oh, yeah, I understand what you mean by that. Versus like, oh, but I don't mean this to, to, to people that might be in a different background. Because I love me. And we struggle around people who don't look like us. In the same way, I would argue, we start to struggle with a God who doesn't look like us. 
And we end up highlighting the things about Jesus that resonate with us and ignore the rest. And we want a Barabbas. So what are your greatest affections? Because this plays out very easily. The greatest affection. If your greatest affection is political party of some sort, then you end up creating a Republican Jesus or a Democratic Jesus. If your greatest affection is maybe your ethnicity, then you end up with a white Jesus or a black Jesus or a Latino Jesus. Like, it becomes even practical. Like, if your strong affection, if the thing that, that consumes you right now is like schools for your children, then you end up with a Jesus who's all pro-homeschool, or you end up with a Jesus who's pro-sending your kids to a public school or pro-private Christian school, whatever it may be, and you end up with a caricature of Jesus that is not reflective of Jesus. And we all do this, because that's what sin does. So not only do we want Barabbas, but we are Barabbas. That's kind of the bad news. We all do this. We're all guilty of the sin of taking a good thing and making it a God thing, of distorting the very nature of who God is, of worshiping something we have created that is false. And we all move from denying ourselves to actually focusing that much more on ourselves by creating a Jesus that is based upon ourselves. And the wage of all that, the play out of all that is, is death. It's sin. It's sin and death. That's the verdict on each of our lives. So we are Barabbas. We are under the guilty verdict. But there's good news too. Not only do we want Barabbas, not only are we Barabbas, but Jesus dies for Barabbas. Like the only character who can very literally in Scripture say that Jesus died for them is Barabbas. Like, I'm not saying Barabbas is saved or anything like that in terms of his spiritual life. But he can literally stand there and be like, that guy died on the cross for me. It's such a unique part of his story. And it shows also this whole trial, this whole situation, that Barabbas himself is incapable of saving himself. This whole situation is outside of Barabbas' control. Condemnation is put upon Barabbas' head, and it's really Jesus and Pilate that are the the players in the storyline. And too often, I think we hope that these Barabbas versions of Jesus will save us, but they are incapable. Cannot save you. Your pride or politics or whatever can't save you. Your ethnicity can't save you. Your customized desires and hobbies and everything else. Your false messiahs can't save. Cultural preferences cannot save you. Anything outside of being justified and reconciled to God through the real Jesus Christ cannot save. That's the only way. And the father in the story had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. So he condemns Jesus, even though Barabbas deserved it, so that we would get the freedom that Barabbas got to experience, but in a greater form. And the answer isn't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. The gospel actually would probably argue there's no boots to begin with. And and God had to do the work. That's why it was so confounding to the first century Jews who had heard plenty about this political, royal line of David King who was going to come. He's going to to restore what had been broken, this king that's going to come one day. And 
they just didn't know always what to do with Isaiah, speaking of the suffering of one to come and how it fit in. And it was the story of Jesus when that finally starts coming to light. Like when Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So there's a lot of conversations around atonement and exactly what the atonement accomplishes and ways to talk about the atonement, but the primary way, I would argue, Scripture does over and over and over is this substitution idea. That, that it's here in, in something like Isaiah. It's here on display with, with Barabbas and Jesus. That there's a chastisement, there's a punishment to be had, but yet we would get peace and by his wounds we would be healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us, we have turned every one to his own way. That is the verdict upon all. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's the good news. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died to meet our actual greatest need. My greatest need is not necessarily for healing from scars from my past. My greatest need is not to be made emotionally well. My greatest need is not to have physical healing. My greatest need uh, is not to, to, to not be alone. My, my greatest need is not necessarily any of those things. All those things are good things. But our greatest need is to actually be remade into his image. Like that is what we are actually saved for. We use sometimes big churchy words like sanctification and glorification. But, but they're big, important words, and Paul uses them to talk about what, is, what, what, what are we saved for so that we become more like him, and then one day we would stand before him in our full, whole, restored self. That's sanctification, glorification. That, that is the trajectory of what we are to actually be, living out our true humanity. Justification is the pathway to get there. All this conversation about the substitute and atonement, it's, it's that. But our greatest true need is to be changed. And we live in a weird day where we, we will say things like, real love wouldn't want anybody to change. But no one actually functions that way at all. Everybody knows, like, there's a, there's a better, more mature version of myself. And there's a better, more mature version of my friends and my wife and everybody else. And we, we all function knowing that that is actually true. It's like when there's a song lyric that says, like, there's no better you than the you that you are. What's stupid? It just is. If there's no better me than the me that I am, that sounds terrible. Um, but there's maturity, there's growth, there's, there's learning and wisdom and all these things that come, not only with time, but, but with the Holy Spirit in me, come with sanctification. And God looks down and says, yes, you do not have to clean yourself up. Absolutely. Don't, don't hear from any of my words that you have to make yourself right in order for, for God to do this work. No, God loves you as you are, but he also loves you to change you. You don't even know that your greatest need is to be changed. But God so loves you because he wants to change you and grow you and eventually make you whole and join him forever. God loves you, not because of you, but in spite of you, but ultimately to draw you to himself, change you, and bring you close to him forever. And that's good news. 
He puts the Spirit in you to, to accomplish that goal throughout your lifetime. It's, it's amazing. And he does this through Jesus. So what does our Barabbas look like? At some point, it's worth it to take some inventory <laughs> of some of the ways we picture Jesus and maybe sometimes going back to how he's actually described and wondering if those things line up. Maybe we have a, a Jesus that's too often created in our image. And the beauty and probably one of the things that, hey, this is extra bonus for you second service people. I didn't say this earlier. Um, the beauty, one, one of the things that I think it's lost, particularly in sort of our more individualized Western sense, is that um, the, the idea of like oh, our personal quiet time and our personal reading of Scripture is, uh, I think at times we overemphasize that at the expense of communal understanding of studying Scripture together. And we need each other to keep ourselves from being too myopic and having blind spots about what kind of Jesus that sometimes we create. I mean, that's the beauty of what we shared earlier about being in Clarkston and being around people that, that sometimes see the world, view the world a little differently. Because we might have ways that we've created Jesus in our image that aren't correct, and we need other people to point that out to us. Because we're not going to see it very easily. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to do the work, and we need to ask the body to do the work with us. So if you're not in a life group, you're not surrounded by a community that's doing that, get, get into that. Because we need it. It's a, it's a one-way track to create God in your own image, to push away from community, to go online, to try to find your definitions of God and stuff like that. It's a, it's a dangerous, wild, wild west of theology right now. So what does your Barabbas look like? And the beauty is we also weekly hear, um, come to this table. Because hear me, we, we all struggle to, to view Jesus correctly, holy, as he is. Our own sin nature and self likes to redefine Jesus into our own terms. But this table is always open. Not, not to fix everything, not to clean up, but to remember. I mean, each of the 12 stood there at the cross wondering what the heck had just happened. Because they had created Jesus in his own image, but yet they are his disciples. And the same holds true for us, that if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're going to spend a lifetime still trying to get it right and think of Jesus in the full terms that he has told us about. But every time we can come to this table and there's grace, we remember that it cost Jesus everything and that we didn't have to fix ourselves to come in the first place. So if you believe in Jesus, this table is open. And we've been moving to sort of heightened um, some of the liturgy and wording around taking communion here. We brought back intinction. Um, so um, we, we have two options, well, three options. We understand that uh, not everybody is ready for the dipping of the bread back into the cup. Um, and, but we don't want to make, make sure that everyone is welcome at the table no matter what. And so we will do intinction, uh, which is taking a piece of the bread, dipping in the cup, and you can return to your seat. Um, we understand that COVID and noroviruses and everything else are still around. So uh, we ask you to be cautious. Try to make sure you don't need to, to like wet the whole piece of bread. 
Uh, you can just get a little bit of it wet. Um, try to keep your fingers out of the liquid if you can. If you're not totally comfortable with that, uh, we still have the little cups uh, with a little wafer on top should you want to, pr to, to partake in that. And if you are celiac or have any other reasons to, to not eat gluten, uh, we have a gluten-free option as well. You can come up and take it. So um, if you want the intinction, it'll be on this side. Uh, the little cups and gluten-free are on this side. Uh, but let's say our liturgy as tied into communion. That we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that before he suffered, he gave this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. That the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, we proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this sacrament. And we repeat uh, this long mysterium that has been said for years and years. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, in the glory of your kingdom. Now may we, all of us pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And you can come forward at any point.